Welcome to Accessibility, a podcast brought to you by the Assistive Technology Center at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. We'll be taking an in-depth look at various technologies on and off campus and interviewing leading professionals in the field. Our goal is to help students and faculty learn about new technologies so that you can lead independent lives and access your academics. Hi, I'm Josh. And I'm Kelsey. And this is a great episode that we have uh, for you today. Very unique episode. We are featuring an interview with Todd Frank, Dan Clark, and Keith Paulson of Braille On Demand. They are super, super interesting people doing an amazing thing um, that really benefits students uh, from K-12 into higher education. And their project that they're talking about today uh, is something so unique that we're really hoping that, you know, you can learn a lot more about it and how you might be able to use it. We really hope that you enjoy it. And as always, write us at atc at umass.edu with any questions or comments or follow us on all of our social media platforms. We're uh, at UMassATC on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. See y'all soon. Have a good one. Bye. Enjoy the show. (laughs) Hey, y'all. Since we're talking about a unique service called Braille On Demand from Iowa Prison Industries, we thought we would let you know about some options for Braille on mobile. Android, or Google-based mobile devices, comes pre-installed with Brailleback. Brailleback is an accessibility service that helps blind users make use of Braille devices. It works together with the TalkBack app to give a combined Braille and speech experience. This app lets you connect a supported refreshable Braille display to your device via Bluetooth. Screen content will be presented on the Braille display and you can navigate and interact with your device using the keys on the display. It is possible to input text using the Braille keyboard as well. In iOS or Apple mobile devices, VoiceOver, their included screen reader, includes system-wide support for Braille cords in 6 and 8 dot Braille, enabling direct Braille entry without the need for a physical Braille keyboard. The Braille keyboard is available in the rotor, so you can get to it and use it to type text, unlock your phone, launch apps, and find content in apps like music. iOS is also fully compatible with more than 70 refreshable Braille displays. You can connect a Bluetooth wireless Braille display to read voiceover output, including contracted and uncontracted Braille, and equations using Nemeth code. When you edit text, your display shows the text in context, and your edits are seamlessly converted between Braille and printed text. And Braille displays with input keys can be used to control your iPhone when voiceover is turned on. The power of mobile devices is truly incredible. Happy Brailling! Welcome to another episode of Accessibilities. This is a very, very fun one, uh, very near and dear to my heart, the subject matter, which is Braille, uh, specifically Braille On Demand, which is a service that provides Braille transcription for printed materials uh, through the prison system. And we have three gentlemen here from the organization here to discuss all of that with us. Starting out, we have Todd Frank, and he's a teacher of visually impaired students and is also a user of the service, which is, uh, which is interesting. I'm sure we'll be chatting more about that uh, later in the show. 
we have Keith Paulson. Uh, he manages the Anamosa Braille Center, and he works directly with the transcribers, and he leads the Braille program. Dan Clark directs Iowa Prison Industries. He manages the overall correctional industries program in Iowa, including the men and women that produce license plates, clothing, etc. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you all for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Thank you. We can go in whatever order you would like. I'm curious to know who each of you are. How did you land in the world of accessibility? And, and how did you begin working at Braille on Demand? I'll start. This is Todd, the teacher of students with visual impairments. I got a teaching job at the Braille School in the mid-90s, a lot of it because I lived near the school. So I've been involved in Braille ever since then. I've never been involved in our apprentice and industries itself until about three or four years ago when I was contacted because they were trying to um, make their Braille transcriber program available in public schools in Iowa. Oh, interesting. Hmm. Huh. So you landed there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I can go next if that's all right. Yeah, sure. Okay, um, I was hired pretty much as the backup for the Braille shop for our former Braille shop production coordinator, Lenny Miller. Uh, he was really pivotal in getting this whole thing set up. When I took over in March, it was already pretty successful throughout Iowa and was a pretty popular program. So all the tweaks were made and it was a pretty well-oiled machine by the time I took over. But that's how I fell into it. Um, I originally was hired for downstairs in Custom Wood. This was just I got certified while I was working down there. That way, when Lenny retired, that there was somebody ready to take the helm, I guess. That's great. So when you say certified, did you mean certified as a teacher of the visually impaired or as in? Braille transcriber. Okay, okay. Uh, the the liter uh, Library of Congress, I'm certified in literary transcription. Excellent, excellent. Thank you for clarifying. Uh, hi, this is Dan Clark. So I manage the overall prison industries program in Iowa. We have about 750 men and women that are incarcerated that we uh, provide work training opportunities for. So many of your listeners will be familiar with the folks that make license plates and, of course, clothing and other products like that. But one of our most important programs is Braille Transcription, uh, the program that Keith heads up. And uh, work training that we provide in Iowa and almost every other state has as well uh, helps these men and women prepare for reentry back into our communities. They're much more likely to be successful when they get out if we've helped them learn how to work, you know, how to show up and do a job every day, how to follow instructions, how to uh, care about what the customer's concerns are how to work in a group, communicate, all the things that many people take for granted that maybe some of the folks that are incarcerated have never had that opportunity. So our Braille program is, is as I mentioned, one of the most important programs we have for helping people. And uh, what makes it even better is that uh, the output of this program, the transcribed Braille, helps so many school children around the state. 
Yeah, it's, it's a really unique program. And I think you're right in that many of our listeners will certainly think of things like license plates because, you know, you see a lot of that in our culture, right? People talking about that. Um, and so the reason that you guys are partially here is because I met you at Closing the Gap. We were at that conference, you were doing a session about Braille on Demand, and I thought it was really fascinating because I don't think it's something that people know exists, generally speaking, unless they're in that world, and how good you know, of a service this is and how important of a service it is um, and how unique it is for the people that you have who are learning these skills, as you say. So, um, you know, could you provide just some information about how Braille on Demand got started to begin with, you know, and what's the history? Also, I'm just curious how we could make this more known to the community, kind of like how license plates and clothing are already known. Sure, this is Dan again. So uh, in Iowa, we formed a work group with the Department of Education, the School for the Blind, and other uh, and parents of, of sight-impaired children to look at the production of uh, Braille and how that could be improved, you know, both uh, accuracy and the cost and speed and so on. And as part of this work group, it really struck me uh, how long it takes uh, for a school child to receive transcribed materials and how often those children who are uh, in the same classroom with uh, fully sighted children don't have available uh, the same materials because uh, we as a state couldn't provide those transcribed materials in an accessible format in a timely manner. So um, uh, Keith's predecessor and several of us began to think about ways that we could speed that process up for maybe not a full textbook, but a chapter or something one of the teachers had downloaded from the internet or a worksheet or things like that. And uh, we realized that if, uh, you know, instructors like Todd Frank, if they could email in materials, uh, the men in the program at Animosa, they could jump right on it, transcribe it, and then email back a uh, electronic rail file, or we could emboss that material quickly and UPS it out. And uh, so Todd mentioned earlier, he was part of that, trial program where we rolled that out to parts of the state and uh, it, that service proved to be very popular. We really felt like uh, we had found a need and that Keith and the men that are in the program in Anamosa really were able to do a great job at filling that need. Well, thank you for filling us in on that. Um, I'm, I'm wondering how many men work in the program, and are there women transcribers as well as men? We currently have uh, 23 in Anamosa. Uh, we have satellite shops in Newton, Fort Dodge, Mount Pleasant, some of the guys that started in Anamosa that have transferred throughout the uh, system. We've kind of started satellite shops so they can continue with their Braille transcription because it's one of those things, you if you don't use it, you lose it. Mm -hmm. so overall, we have 35 in the Braille program. We don't currently have any women, but I mean, me and, between me and Dan, we've been looking at pretty much every option to expand, especially with the potential of this express rail starting off, so. So I actually have a follow-up question to this, just because I'm, I'm curious. Um, 
when you're talking about, you know, you've seen quite the need for it in your state. Um, and I, I know that you also provide services outside, like people can, you know, go into your website and request this and everything. But um, do you find that it's really on a, a growth trajectory versus, you know, the opposite just because, you know, with the influx of technology and everything, are you, you haven't seen it affected at all in terms of the amount of requests or anything like that? I would say Braille on Demand itself has, I mean, we set our record month this year just with uh, the type of work has changed, in my opinion. I think Todd could probably touch on that too. Uh, we used to do get a lot of literary and things like that, but with the translation software that's out there, some of the TVIs can probably take care of that on their own. So we get a lot of the technical materials, the math, the music, the uh, scientific notations, sort of stuff like that. And some of that stuff gets pretty complicated in the formatting and everything to produce that in a way that is useful to the student. So our our guys in here are all certified with certifications and those types of things, and they can they are constantly being updated with codes and things like that. So I think there will always be a need for that, in my opinion. But the the actual translation software is improving, and it, it, so I would say there's. It's going two directions, I would say. What software are you using? Uh, for our actual transcription, we use Braille, uh, Braille 2000 and Duxbury, which is Perky Duck. Uh, for the actual zoning and preparing of the text to input into that software, we usually use uh, Abbey Fine Reader. Um, we also have Corel Draw, which we use for a lot of our tactile production, um, most of that. So that's, that's the main ones, I would say. So what is the process? for a, an incarcerated man to gain that certification in transcription? Okay, um, so they go through a hiring process just like you would outside of the walls and you know you, there's an interview and once they're actually boarded onto uh, the Braille program uh, we sign them on to National Federation for the Blinds uh, pretty much the same certification that I've done the same thing you are Required to be certified in literary transcription by the Library of Congress within 12 months. Uh, most people don't have an issue with the 12 months, but we really push for them learning it and becoming good transcribers. We don't want them to rush through things and put a timeline on it to the point where they're trying to pass a test and they're not retaining the information. Our main goal is to get them through the through the pro to retain it and know how to become a transcriber. Mm -hmm. uh, and then after that, it's, it's basically their pay, pay scale is decided on further certifications. Um, especially now, like I said before, with it going more technical materials, um, it's pretty much going to be required of them to become certified in Nemeth. Mm -hmm. So for math transcribing, we get most of our work that comes in as Nemeth. Uh, that hadn't been required in the past, but most guys would do it anyways, especially ones with release dates that are hoping to take this to the streets. If they want to be successful and be able to get the type of work that we get here, they have to be comfortable. And the, I would say for a guy, we normally probably don't hire anybody with less than a five-year sentence just because to get through all the certifications and programs to make them a successful experienced brailleist that could take it to the streets. Uh, it, we would think it would be at least five years. It'd be Maybe the time. Yeah, absolutely. It's a skill in itself. <laughs> Interesting. They actually have to wait a year, have their just their literary for a year before they can even start 
the next, and that's actually required through NFB. That's not our stipulation. So okay. once that first certification, they have to build experience before they're even allowed to test for the next certifications. Interesting. I mean, that makes sense. You know, you need that experience. But yeah, I did. I had no idea that that was the case. Huh. That's really cool. And uh, you had mentioned, um, you know, that uh, these individuals who are doing this are um, receiving payment. So I think that's a question, you know, like a lot of conversation about that. How do they get to use that payment? I'm not aware of how the prison system works in regards to that. Is that something that they have access to right away or do they save that for when they leave or how does that work? Well, they all have obligations. Most of them will have obligations. There's uh, anything they buy, there's pay for stay, which goes back to the institution, but uh, restitution, things like yeah. that, like, that's a big part of it, I would say. Yeah. Each man and woman that's incarcerated has an account, you know, basically a bank account. And in some cases, family members will send in money. In other cases, uh, that man or woman might have a job transcribing Braille or uh, working in the kitchen at the institution. And so the money that they earn goes into that account. Hmm. We do require them to save a certain amount of that money for when they get released. That's and great. then as Keith mentioned, many of them will have obligations to pay restitution or other things that will come out of that. But um, right. they manage that. They manage that uh, money, you know, and they're able to buy certain things. We have an online system where they can order from our commissary so they can order snacks and personal care items deodorant they can order a television things like that with their own money that's awesome i mean i think that's so important that's a, it's a life skill in itself i mean you know when you're talking about creating providing those soft skills for working right and being able to talk to people show up on time manage your work blah 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 i mean the end result of that is so important too and i think that's something that I had no idea that that was the case in terms of, you know, it's a skill that you're teaching before they leave. And I think that's really excellent. Gives them a strong foundation to build yeah. good work on. Yeah. So One of the things that yeah. uh, Keith mentioned that, that's kind of interesting, I think about, well, incarceration is that generally speaking, a man or a woman will not stay in one institution their entire time while they're incarcerated. They'll, they'll move. So also we classify as a medium slash maximum security institution. <clears throat> as a man gets closer to completing his sentence, he'll move typically <clears throat> to lower custody units that um, allow more um, privileges. And, uh, you know, if that person is able to succeed with less supervision, then they continue along that kind of track. Well, because it takes so long to learn Braille, uh, Keith has really been innovative to link in these other folks when they leave Animosa and they go to lower custody institutions. He's keeping them connected so he can transmit work to uh, different institutions around the state every morning when uh, the work comes in because we really he never really knows how much work's going to come over the transom any given day. And uh, so he can distribute that work to men that have been trained in Braille transcription at, I don't know, I think four different prisons, isn't it, Keith? Yes. Actually, probably going to be five here shortly. But. I think that's great. I mean, that's it's a great way to 
scale it. But again, kind of talking about, you know, a person's life cycle going through the prison system, it makes sense that there's like a slow release of responsibility, I guess, kind of just like in life in general. So to be able to keep up that skill set makes sense, but also to, as they're able to, you know, get close to their release time, that's important. Um, so I guess I'm curious about Braille certifications, you know, as things are updated, right, in the Braille code, um, the rollout of United English Braille, how do you manage certification maintenance, updates, things like that? And do you find this is another kind of add-on to that as people leave the prison system and are out in the world and getting jobs and things, do you find that people maintain that certification and they're working with it or are you not really tracking that? Um, I, they, they maintain it pretty much. Uh, I'm mostly responsible for the guys within here to keeping up with, I mean, it's, there's so many avenues to be up to date on, uh, where codes has changed, especially Braille is constantly changing. Uh, we're actually waiting for a, still waiting for a new formats test for the new that is based off unified English Braille. And we have our guys that have already been through all the provisionals of this test. All they're doing is waiting for the test to be able to be certified. In. So they're, I would say above maybe some other people without that sort of avenue, but I, uh, especially, well, I guess I, I, I wouldn't, I, I could check, but I, the, we have a guy that actually is still transcribing on the outside that we still are in contact with. But as far as keeping up to date with what he, what certifications, what the way he goes about, I'm assuming he probably has the same thing we do. Um, throughout the five prisons here, we have what we call a resources page that all of the other offenders from all the prisons and everybody at their own spot has access to. So anytime there's a change to a code or an update to a code, uh, we post it on that resources and there's everybody has access to it. So it's immediate to everybody in all the prisons. Um, that's pretty valuable, I, I would say. Uh, what else? Yeah, I think that's... That's pretty much how we keep up with an expo. <laughs> that's, that's great. Um, I do have one quick follow-up to that, just because I'm, I'm thinking of certifications. Like, I hold certifications as a speech pathologist, for example. So every three years, I need a certain number of hours and things to maintain that. Do, does the same ring true for this certification? Do they have to kind of, like, re-up it? And, you know, how does that work? Um, I would say no, not really, because it's changing so often. There's not – I mean, just – we, you have to make the, the changes and the updates available to them. So a lot of it, some of it is in Braille, I would say up to uh, personal interpretation on some things too, because the code may say one thing, but your experience is going to tell you to do something different. And you're going to, you do what is, you put the Braille reader first. Like it's mm -hmm. not what makes it easier. Not what the, it's, it's what is going to be effective to the Braille reader. So mm -hmm. I think, uh, as far as like you have to recertify, once you're certified in literary, you're certified for life. You're okay. <laughs> okay. That makes sense. Thank you. In terms of receipt of materials and, and all of that, how far in advance typically will transcribers receive materials? I'm thinking specifically something like if, if you're dealing with a, let's say a math textbook or a math worksheet where you have a lot of visual information I'm, i i know from experience that takes longer to transcribe than it would a literary braille are those materials received further in advance 
We try to. <laughs> uh, and that was kind of one of the driving points of Braille on Demand and Express Braille re, uh, as a result of that also. I mean, you you would hope that you could get everything somebody needed. Like, yeah, it might take a year to do a whole math textbook. So to have something to us while students are out of school that we can get a start on and hopefully be able to keep up with them throughout the school year. But there's always changing in curriculum and stuff like that. And that's so Braille on Demand and Express Braille give you the opportunity to, you can send it in this morning and we're going to be sending it to you by the end of the day tomorrow. So I guess it varies, but yeah, I mean, they do every, all our customers, IDB, all, they all try their best to get them to you with plenty in advance. Normally it's our busy times during the summer when students are out of school and teachers are preparing for the upcoming year. Sure. That, that so makes sense. Do you have kind of like, I, I mean, I know that curriculum is always changing, but there, you know, there's a lot of similarity for a series of years. Like people will use a textbook and they'll probably use that for a little bit just because of the nature of school systems. Right. And not having a lot of funding to constantly purchase the newest things. So uh, when you get a request from someone for maybe like, you know, a math textbook or a literary text, um, do you have a repository for that that people can pull from and look at and edit so that you don't constantly have to be reinventing the wheel or how do you organize that? Um, we have, we keep everything we do on the Lewis database. So anything within the last five years, copyright wise, will stay on there. Uh, that would be their first avenue to check. But I would say as far as if there's tweaks to textbooks and things like that, I haven't really encountered that in a way, but, I guess I'm not, I'm not really, it would, we would probably treat it as a part, a new transcription if there was that much new to do, but. Right. Interesting. If it is something they find on Lewis database or something that is close enough, like within a couple of years of a, then it's a reproduction charge, which is, you know, obviously we can turn that around in three or four days and that's what we run into more often. Okay. Is not the exact same. I mean, book. But. Yeah, yeah. How much braille does a person transcribe in a day typically? What What's your volume? Um, for our new transcribers, our minimum is ten pages of print per day. Uh, most ones that you can tell right away that are motivated can can do that pretty easy. Uh, that would roughly translate into thirty braille pages a day, um, with anywhere from literary to math. But our our uh, our more seasoned, uh, experienced Braillists, they'll do 20 to 30 pages of, you, you can send them three or four Braille on demands in one day and they'll turn around and get them out while they're still working on their textbook projects. Wow. So, mm, the, the translation software and the Abbey Fine Reader, we've actually utilized our students that are not certified yet. Mm. They can actually zone the material before and just pretty much prep it for the certified transcribers to go through and format and look and just pretty much make sure it's a quality product. And they're they're actually doing a portion of the brailing, but they're also serving as an extra proofreader too. So that speeds it up and that kind of boosts our capacity that way too. It helps. Yeah, it's a little bit more of a well-oiled machine that way. Yep. <laughs> That's really yes. neat that you're able. It's very nice too for our students because they're getting the experience of what yeah. it's like. Uh, project together so yeah I guess they're still waiting on certifications or whatever so yeah I mean it's a good use of time right <laughs> that's awesome that's great 
Um, so I wonder if you could take us from kind of start to finish from the acquisition of materials all the way through transcription, production, and then shipping. Yeah, I'll start with that. I'm going to, if you don't mind, step back and talk about some things that were mentioned by Keith and Dan before. Um, when I started this Braille thing in teaching, students were in a residential school and there were certified Brailleists on site. The problem came when blind students or any student needing Braille moved back to their home schools in the general education setting. Braille was hardly available at all. Right. Ordered ahead of time, and then we would have several issues with things coming ahead of time. We'd have to, the teacher would have to know what they were going to need a year ahead of time. And like uh, Keith said, a page of Braille, a page of print is approximately three pages of Braille. You can imagine the boxes that would arrive. Right. And in education, <laughs> since it's fluid, three fourths of those Braille pages would never be used. You know, so there's yeah, a, lot of yeah. wasted, a lot of wasted time. Um, the other thing is, it, it, these guys do a wonderful job with the technical stuff, the math, and all that. But it used to be the habit of transcribing straight literature by hiring a paraprofessional in the school mm -hmm. to do it. Bless their hearts, but they're not <laughs> real transcribers. All right. <laughs> I'm going to type something in by hand, and I'm going to press F5, and now it's Braille, so I'm going to hit the embossing button, and the formatting can be way off. Yeah. So the whole idea, what got us as teachers of the visually impaired excited about this whole project was the idea that we're providing Braille reading students who are in the general education setting the same opportunities in terms of accessing the curriculum that their sighted peers have. Right. And um, this has gone very much forward with that. Okay. Um, about um, for acquiring materials and things like that, we typically scan whatever Braille is needed to the school. And that can be a school secretary, that could be the student's paraprofessional, that could be anybody. There's a very clear, nice order form online where they log in with the student's name and basically upload whatever they want and send it to them. Mm -hmm. The most important box, because these guys keep a profile on all the students, mm -hmm. but the one thing that changes all the time is the date when you would like it back. Mm. And the date we kind of throw in arbitrarily because the reality is we've never had anything come late. You mm. know, my students have things mailed to them, so we're not transcribing files with someone who hasn't been trained in that, even if the equipment is there. But like Dan said once a couple of years ago, Iowa's a rural state, so UPS is pretty much considered <laughs> overnight no matter what, which makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So, so, yeah, it's basically sending a file and it comes back. Hmm. Okay. Um, so, okay, I do have a question, though. So, you know, you're, you're also providing things out of state as well. Is that correct, right? Okay, so um, Iowa is, it's likely your, maybe your most popular state that you're providing to, but what are some of the other more popular states that you're doing this with? Where, what's your reach currently? Well, we actually, we're not, we haven't done any um, 
uh, the Braille on demand, Express Braille type things for out of state. What we get from out of state generally is full textbooks and projects. Right. Um, a lot of these contacts were made before me, so I'm not really sure how. Oh, okay, okay. But uh, New Jersey, BOCES, New oh, Jersey, okay. yep. a lot out of there. Um, we've done some with Chicago, Lighthouse. Mm -hmm. uh, where's the other big one? APH. Okay. Greenhouse, they've sent us some of their work too. We've done several projects for them over the past year, but yeah, I, I'm not sure where the word comes from, but <laughs> I, I get an email from them saying, hey, can you give us a quote on this book? Uh, we're actually doing a music uh, conducting book for South Carolina, oh, University cool. of South Carolina. That's really so, neat. Yeah, it, it kind of... I, I mean, hopefully you'll get a bunch more requests after this too, but I mean, uh, what will that do to your uh, productivity, right? Like, uh, will you be able to hire more people? How does that work, you know? Like, how do you expand? Uh, we have plenty of space to expand. Um, I think utilizing the different the satellite shops and really mm -hmm. we, have, we have guys that basically stay on projects year-round and then we have our workhorses that can pump out that quality. <laughs> And you know they're really experienced with that and uh, making quick making the decisions and producing a product. So we're already trying to expand capacity just to be prepared for it. But yeah, as far as certifications and experience go, that's right. You know, it takes years. So yeah, it's wild. That's, that's really great. It's awesome that you have a, a workforce that's willing to take to it and and learn it so readily. Um, they take pride uh, in their work. That is for sure. That's hmm. awesome. Um, so I'm wondering how you handle uh, complex images when, when in the transcribing process. Like I'm thinking, images or or extremely visual, complex math data visualizations. Um, all our transcribers are trained in tactile production. Uh, we generally use Swell Touch with uh, image enhancers, so they use Corel Draw to create the tactile as closer as uh, you know, best as possible, I suppose. Um, I suppose some of the, there, there are uh, points where you just have to take the description of something, you know, I mean, generally we able, we are able to produce pretty much anything that is on there, but the more complex ones, I'm sure you would know. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> a real reader is going to have a hard time deciphering something that is, small and detailed and to a point like that. So uh, most of it, I would say they know how to do it if it's possible. Our more veterans seasoned guys are there for counsel on whether or not they've had feedback on this is something producible in Braille that you would want as a tactile, but, mm. and actually even past that, actually creating them too. So they're, they're pretty talented. We have a, a tactile library that we have on Corel Draw, where anybody who has ever made any tactile, we all save that stuff on there. It's created as an image, so you can actually go through, go to this library, and find a lot of the stuff that people are needing produced already made. That's so cool. That's amazing. So, so that I'm sure saves some time. Yep. <laughs> Another thing that happens with these visuals and tactiles is that if these guys aren't sure what to do they'll contact us and say what do you want this to look like what do you want it mm -hmm. to be do you want to eliminate this picture that sort of stuff so 
good yeah. contact communications between the school and the um, IPI. That's something that really changed with Braille on demand is uh, before we did work like that, when we make a textbook, that textbook's the same for every person. I mean, there's only one uh, correct way to format a textbook. Mm -hmm. But when we do Braille on demand, it's for a specific individual student and a specific educator. So uh, Todd or some of the folks that work for him and other educators, they'll work with our transcribers to produce the Braille just at the level that that school child is, is uh, accomplished in as far as their Braille reading. So a younger student might uh, be at a certain level of Braille and we'll produce it that way for that student. As that student progresses on through the different grades, then the way we produce the Braille for that student will change as well. And I know Todd could probably talk more about that. And Todd, too, uh, is that a part of that student's profile as well? Like, do you have that information about where they're at? Yeah, we do. And what we're mostly, what mostly is being referred to in this conversation is Braille contractions. Mm -hmm. There's two types of Braille. There's uncontracted, which is letter for letter. And then there's contracted Braille. There's about, as Keith would know, the number of contractions changes. I believe there's like 182 or something right now. <laughs> Around there. With a lot of rules. <laughs> Around there, okay. We we start off with a lot of younger students learning letter for letter Braille because we want them in the public school to use phonics and learn how yeah. letters combine and things like, and then move huh. into contractions later. So on a student profile, we can have a list of saying, "Can you guys use these twelve contractions we sent you, but none of the other ones, and leave the rest uncontracted." And then when the kid learns five more contractions, we write it back and say, can you add these contractions now? So there's a profile in every kid that seems to be pretty fluid. That's really do, neat. Do you have a system for what contractions to add and, and when to add them? And I, I guess a, a follow-up to that would be, um, how long typically do you find that it takes to go from fully, you know, a, a person fully reading in grade one to grade two, knowing all of your contractions and, and being comfortable in that? You know, that is hard to answer. The reason being that blindness is 1% of 1% of the population, so you really can't norm any of that stuff. So a lot of it is based on our teacher discretion. There's some students who I've started off with teaching contracted Braille right away. Most of them we start with uncontracted. It's hard to say, but if you ask for an overall goal, um, it would be nice to have the kid reading fully contracted Braille by third grade. And that's a very broad general rule. Interesting. Well, I guess like, I mean, and is that also kind of, you find that in line with, I mean, people who are sighted, who are learning to read, typically begin reading around third grade as well. Is that kind of like the similar progression? That's exactly right. They okay. say up to third grade, you're learning to read. Third grade on, you're reading to learn. Right, exactly. Interesting. Okay. So these are things that I didn't really know. So I'm really enjoying kind of this 
interesting parallel to my world, which is speech and language pathology, and I'm seeing students go through, but most of the students that I've worked with have been cited. So, you know, as you're seeing that progression and that learning, that's really interesting. Well, as an aside, we work with speech language pathologists all the time. With, for great. example, tactile symbols instead of picture symbols. Yeah, exactly. And when you're thinking about something like communication disorders with like speech generating, you know, information, if you're using symbols to communicate, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So something like PECS, picture exchange communication system, do you see a lot of that? I do see a lot of that. Interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's really, yeah, that's unique. That's another angle to it. Yep, teamwork is what does it, isn't it? Oh, always. We cannot do this alone, that is for sure. <laughs> right. That's true. Um, so getting back to the, the transcription process, I'm, guess, uh, I'm, I'm wondering what are the most challenging aspects to providing Braille uh, in such a, a quick um, fashion? You know, uh, oftentimes, you know, doing a one-day transcription. Um, what, what, what trips your transcribers up? Um, I would say... Well, capacity, I mean, is always potential. I mean, there's days where we just, we get too much at once, but uh, most of the time that's not, I would say your non-typical occurrences, things like, like he's, like Todd's saying, where um, maybe a, a teacher had scanned something in because they need that for the class, but they're not thinking about how is this going to get put into Braille? How, how are we going to translate this to that, that the student can interpret it correctly. So I think uh, the, that's probably one of the big things, but the communication with us and guys like Todd is where we remedy that, I suppose. Uh, being able to directly contact people that have experience with that and work through it with them to make sure we're providing what they need. I think uh, that speeds up the process, but there's, I mean, it's dependent on ex access to uh, communication. So. There's open avenues, but that would probably be the one thing that slows down the Braille on demand order the most, yeah. There's also things that are specific to the prison setting that give uh, challenges to Keith and people in the other areas of IPI. You know, I mentioned that men and women, they typically move from institution to institution as they are completing their sentence. Sometimes that happens with very short notice. And, uh, you know, there might be a parole board hearing and all of a sudden uh, somebody's going to be shipped off. And then, of course, um, things happen. You know, fortunately, none of us have to live with the people that we work with all day, but <laughs> these men do. Yeah. And so sure. they might they might leave the setting and there might be an altercation. And all of a sudden, one of the men that's in our program is no longer able to be part of that program or. Uh, if there's a security situation at the prison, then there might be a restricted movement period, a.k.a. lockdown. And so Keith sometimes has a little bit of excitement, but that's where this um, networking that he set up, it allows him to redirect the work and, um, you know, try to still fill the needs for Todd and others around the state. Mm. Yeah, those are some really kind of unique pain points for sure. Um, so and I'm, I'm, as a follow-up to that, I'm kind of curious if, if someone, you know, if there was the need for disciplinary action like there would be in any position, right, if someone does something wrong um, or not what you're hoping for, 
and maybe are having to step away from the program, is there an opportunity for them to rejoin at some point or how does that work? Well, I'm, I would say it's, it depends on the severity. Okay. The, if it's uh, any IPI position, if they receive a major report, okay, so discipline, they have to go a year. Okay. Major or report free before they can actually be hired back into it. Okay. But, uh, I think I think Dan would agree. Most of the plant managers and institutions leave it to staff discretion on whether or not you're going to let somebody in. You can look at what happened, the situation. Uh, for one, if he was progressing in the position in the first place, right. uh, somebody that maybe you know they were up here for the paycheck and hanging out and got in trouble, you're less likely to right. bring them back with open arms as to somebody that maybe had an altercation. You read into it and you could go both ways with it, but when he, he really invested himself and this actually maybe was what keeping him out of trouble this long. Right. So you look at those guys and yeah, I mean, it's give and take. It's situation by situation. And I, I think like the point that is really important is that, you know, you, it, you don't know how people react to kind of understanding how different things relate to prisons and all of that. Everyone has their own opinions, but I, it's so, um, it so mirrors reality, like the world outside of it. And I think that's a really important point to drive home is that this is a really interesting opportunity for people to kind of, you know, turn, turn some things around and that, you know, even when you're in there, just as you would be disciplined in a job that's not in a prison system, you know, you would be there as well and that you have those opportunities to kind of remedy and move forward. And I think that's really important. That's great. I'm wondering, um, I, I know that you ran the program in its first year as kind of a prototype uh, to see um, how that would work. And, and I'm wondering what you learned in that first year and how you've been able to carry that on as the program is, has expanded? I, I would say just from what I, my, my discussion with Todd and Lenny and Dan when they were first starting this, I would say the, the interaction between the TBIs and the, uh, us within the walls and doing the transcription is probably the most important thing. I think uh, Dan has said it before, and, and the feedback and results he hears from people that our customer service and our flexibility to get exactly what a teacher needs is, and the ability to do that in a short period of time, I think that is really the driving force of what makes Braylon Man successful, I would sort of say. But what do you think, Todd? Um, I think exactly what you're thinking, Keith. And when this thing got started, um, IPI didn't come out and say, now we have Braille available, who wants them? And I'm, they contacted schools. <laughs> I was very fortunate to be a part of this. These guys would come down to the school and meet with the principal, with me, the teacher, and even the student and say, what exactly are you guys looking for in this program? And we'd give them that feedback. Um, they also had, like Dan mentioned before, parents, you know, and we we're starting this and all that. And this whole thing pretty much wound up being tailored around our needs and what we wanted. 
as opposed to just accepting something that was out there. And that's something that doesn't happen very often. Um, an early example of that is we had a student who was in Spanish in high school and they're designing some, playing some sort of game. I don't know what it was, but it needed to be adapted into Braille. Um, we didn't know what to do. Let's just send it to these guys and see what happens. What happened is they sent us back three versions of the game. Oh, wow. And they said, show these three versions to your student and let us know which one he likes. Huh. He wasn't sure. And the student actually got to have a conversation with Lenny, who was, you know, the predecessor of Keith, on the phone. And they had a conversation and hammered it out that way. So what we learned in the first year of running the program is that these guys are willing to design it around uh, the student needs That's first. Really neat. And that That's just great. combined with the communication is what makes this whole thing go. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and the I, communication I, I, still exists. Yeah. Right. And the preference component is really interesting too. One thing I am curious about that is how you get around some of the security things with regards to this, right? Like in terms of like, um, uh, not necessarily security, I guess it's partially security, but in terms of, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? Privacy, privacy around student privacy and like, you know, that, how do you work through some of that in terms of, you know, what, what people can know about the students and or what, you know, that communication part, you know, a lot of schools have certain regulations or especially around disability and things like that. How do you manage that? How do I manage that? Or how right, the system. Keith. Oh, um, well, anything that comes <laughs> in uh, comes through my email. And so there's an immediate staff interaction right before that. But also the TVIs are knowledgeable of things that, well, this may not be something you want to send to a <laughs> Braille program. But, um, I mean, I would, I would never say that I would fully die. The profiles and the things, the way the actual order form works, outside of just the, the actual work itself, I would say that keeps it pretty generic and it's going through that TBI. There's, yeah. you know, sending it. you might know a, a name, but right. you know, a school district, but uh, I guess the, the, like most, anything else. the most thing would be as I see it. I mean, yeah, I yeah. If there's any names or specific names and I think in the year and a half that I've been doing this on my own, I've seen one thing that was sent to me by accident that was a, a tardy list or something. <laughs> but first, you got to let them know that that happened because that right. happened. So there's, there's avenues to guard against that. Yeah, that's really, I know that would be kind of like, you know, a question that people would have about how do you, and that goes for anything. I mean, whenever we're using cloud storage for anything, you know, there's so many avenues that these questions pop up in. Um, but it, it's, it's really, it's just an interesting thing. Um, I, what I'm really curious about, and Josh and I were talking about this is, you know, the perspective of the people who are doing the Braille, like what, what have you heard from the men that are, you know, going through this certification and who are going through this process? What are some of the, the stories that you, the takeaways from this, that their thoughts? Um, I, it's just a whole different environment up here compared to some of the other places I've worked in the prisons. 
Um, mm -hmm. You guys have to work together and learn from each other. So a lot of, I mean, that goes on in other places too, but specifically critical of each other, conductive criticism. They're, they have to learn to be able to accept that and to be able to divulge mm -hmm. that in productive ways. But just to get to a point where you can stay up here and keep doing the job, you've already invested a year, you know? Right. So when they get to the point where they've gotten through the certification, they take pride in what they're doing. They've learned it. And the fact that you're providing a service to people in the community is just a bonus. I mean, it's a huge bonus and you hear that out of all of them all the time. Yeah. Uh, if you, uh, we've done surveys and reviews of the best thing about IPI and some of this, even, I mean, we have lifers in here too that might not take this stuff to, uh, to the streets. And so they're not generally looking for a, a job skill to, to survive on when they get out of here, but providing them an opportunity to contribute to something while they're still in here. Right. Is another big thing. Like most people have that internal desire to, to do something that's fulfilling. <laughs> so yeah, that's a really unique interest. And it also to have contact with people in a different way, you know, I think that's really unique and super awesome. <laughs> I do think, I, I think uh, the nature of the work too, uh, how rail codes and things like that are, are changing. The guys we get up here have a need to learn. I mean, to be challenged. Like they don't, right. they like, they like the, so I would say so, most of them, I can't speak for all of them, but from my <laughs> understanding, they like the routines outside of their yeah. job. But to come here and have something that they're not, you know, mopping floors for eight hours a day right, or right. shoving food out of a window. These guys are constantly learning, constantly evolving, constantly being challenged and they respond well to it. And I think most of them pretty much thrive on it. They, yeah. they want every bit of material they possibly can. To it's be. critical thought. <laughs> you know, that's a, that's a lot of um, unused, you know, brain space. Otherwise like where that's really, that's really neat. It is definitely. Do you think their enjoyment of it, um, does it also have anything to do with the fact that they're giving back to a community by doing this? Very much so. I'm, some of them, I like it, like when you're speaking lifers or long-termers in general, that is, if not the driving force, one of them. I mean, it's a challenge, but you're, you're still, you know, and you see, I mean, we share the feedback. Uh, we have our PIMS board, so you can hear uh, customer feedback, complaints. So they get immediate review of their work, and they can hear yeah. outside opinions of what they're doing. And I think they appreciate that, too. And it's uh, we have an actual painting done by John Bramblett hanging on the wall in here that was donated to the oh, cool. you know, prison for the work they do. So it's oh. on display, and they know what they're accomplishing. And they take it very seriously and take a lot of pride in what they do. As they should. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, so I, I, we kind of touched on it before, but so it sounds like maybe you know you're you're one person also, so <laughs> you're trying to manage you know these different systems that are building up and everything. But is is there data on people who leave? Um, and you know people who who leave the system and kind of go out into the world. Um, I know you have a couple of people you mentioned kind of stay in contact, but you know, do you, and, and people who might find themselves back in the system, do you rehire those? Like, how does that work too? You know, it's a unique skill set. So, <laughs> um, I, my personal experience, uh, 
I'm, I guess my, one of my big focuses is like, we're trying to find ways that this is an avenue for them if they, when they, yeah. it has happened before. So we have, I guess, an experience or a model of how it can work. Um, I may be going through that with a guy here in the next 10, 12 months that like Dan says, they emailed me this morning says parole's granted. So how do I get this guy through work release and be able to stick with his trade because he's a very talented brailist and yeah. that's on the outside. But I would say Dan can speak more for IPI in general. There's many success stories and data regarding whether maybe not just specifically braille, but throughout the company as a whole. But I would be wondering with that, Dan, too, just like thinking, I'm, I love data. I'm a data head for sure. And I, I wonder about like, you know, does the, if you are keeping data on that, does the data show that people going through this program in particular have more success leaving and not, you know, re-returning re or returning again? Or um, is there anything like that? Yeah, so that is uh, a number that we uh, watch very carefully is the uh, percentage of people that leave incarceration and end up coming back. So for Iowa, the overall rate, it's about 35% within three years. So within three years, about one-third of the folks that uh, leave prison end up coming back. Okay. And that actually is one of the lowest rates uh, in the nation. The overall national average is over 50%, unfortunately. Yeah. So we know that certain programs, um, we, we as a Department of Corrections in Iowa and many states, of course, uh, want to only employ evidence-based practices. And so programs that are shown to uh, reduce the propensity of people to commit a new crime when they are released. IPI is one of those. So IPI is shown to uh, reduce the rate at which people come back by 8%. Wow. And there's many other programs because there's many reasons that people are in prison. Right. So we have programs, of course, for uh, drug addiction, mm -hmm. anger management, um, sex offenders. Right. Uh, so we have lots of programming, high school equivalency and vocational training, such as welding and things like that. Um, so the programs that we employ, we want to make sure have data showing that they actually make a positive effect. And yeah. um, as, you would, as you can imagine, work training is one of them, and we do have the data for that. About 90% about of the folks that are incarcerated in Iowa, and we have about 8,300 people incarcerated, mm -hmm. about 90% of them are scheduled to be released. So it's an important job that we um, uh, that we prepare those folks uh, for reentering our community because once they're back out, I mean, we're rubbing elbows with them at the movie theater, the grocery store, <laughs> a church, or whatever, mm -hmm. and we want to make sure that they know how to get a job and hold down a job and you know and manage their anger and right. stay off of uh, you know avoid drug addiction. So. Anyway, yes, we we do a lot of data yeah, in uh, corrections, and uh, the very single most one, one that is watched is the what's called recidivism rate, or the rate by which, or the rate at which people return to prison after being released. Yeah. 
It is really interesting, but um, it's something I think about a lot because I've been, you know, coming from K-12, this school to prison pipeline that's always talked about and how do we support people and literacy is a big one for me and you know knowing that there's a lot of people who are incarcerated who read below a certain grade level and how you know I personally think literacy is the greatest life skill I've always said that so um, it's always interesting to me to kind of see um, programs like the importance of programs like this and teaching people skills um, that they weren't able to get otherwise for a variety of reasons so Hats off to you guys for that as well. Um, and I think that I think the program that has the highest uh, improvement in re recidivism is actually uh, helping a man or woman get their high school equivalency. Because you can imagine if you get out of prison without even a high school degree, right? <clears throat> boy, it's going to be really tough for you to make it. Absolutely. So um, I don't think Keith mentioned that, but before anyone can join the IPI program, which is considered a um, a privilege mm. before anyone can join they have to complete their high school uh, equivalency and that's whether you're making license plates or sewing or uh, transcribing braille so that's mm -hmm. something that we we want to encourage men and women to do the things that are going to benefit them be it treatment getting their high school equivalency um, you know staying out of trouble right. those are things that that we want them to learn to do. So before they can have the privilege of working at a, a job in Iowa prison industries, they have to do those things. And it works, you know, it's a, yeah. it's a positive motivator for folks to go get their high school degree or um, stay on the, on the right track. A positive motivator that isn't, you know, like that's, that provides them some growth, which is really nice, you know, not just monetary incentive, but, you know, the ability to learn skills and see success for themselves where maybe they haven't seen it in years, which is really great. Right. That's awesome. What skills when when these these men have, have rejoined society, um, what skills are they are they bringing from this job uh, into future employment? What are they able to physically put on a resume from here? Uh, and, and then uh, second to that would be, um, just like you filled this niche in in the blindness community, right? You're providing a service um, for for this community. Uh, do you feel that there are other disability communities that that you would be able to utilize this particular workforce, uh, and and you'd be able to impact other communities just as well? Uh, the first part of your question that you're referring to Braille, specifically, what uh, job skills? On a resume, I think the yes. the the biggest thing these guys come out of here are those certifications and really the training hours. Just the they they would have access to show their work or uh, what trans or what uh, certifications they have obtained while the time they were incarcerated. Uh, just generally making the best out of a bad situation, seeing that they work for this shop. If, and that's just if they're not going into actual a job trying to do Braille transcription. If they're trying to stick with a Braille transcription job, we've actually contracted work out to them, made contacts once with the one one specific individual that did continue to do it once they, mm. well, I guess we have two, but there's only one I know the whole story on. The, the other one is for me. <laughs> but uh, just putting them in, in 
with good contacts and getting their name out there to be able to show them that like, Hey, this guy did excellent while he was in here. He's a very talented brailist. Yeah. I think it's a need everywhere. Uh, <laughs> I don't, I can't imagine I was the only place that runs into some of these needs that this braille on demand program uh, satisfies, but just the capability and the access to go as far as you want to take it, I think is the biggest thing we are trying to do with the braille program. One thing that I wonder about, um, and this might be not something that's on the radar or anything, but, you know, I'm thinking about the deaf and hard of hearing community around captioning and even audio description, things like that. Is that something that's ever come across your plate and thinking like, yeah, we could, we could start maybe a captioning center, you know what I mean? Anything like that or audio description center? <laughs> I, I'm Dan. Well, <laughs> it hasn't so far, but I'm writing it down now. And uh, I also, <laughs> I know Todd could mention something he just reached out to us on, and that involved 3D printing of tactile uh, symbols. So great. that would be something that uh, maybe Todd you want to talk about a little bit. Oh, I'd be glad to talk <laughs> about. I, I'm just thinking to myself first. I'm just going to interject something. When you transcribe something into Braille, what you're doing is making original material accessible. So you're not infringing on any copyright laws doing that. Mm -hmm. um, I know the state of Iowa tried to make little um, videos of stories with an interpreter putting it into ASL. Since mm -hmm. ASL is not word-to-word -word English, they got stymied and couldn't do it. Anyway. Mm -hmm. Another thought on that. I was talking, and Kelsey, you probably know more about this than I do because you're a speech-language pathologist. Oh, boy. <laughs> I was speaking to an SLP here in Iowa, and they are working with something called Project CORE. Okay, yeah. Okay. Out of UNC Chapel Hill? That's it. Yeah. And um, the big thing now is um, those core words that you folks are working on with kids with multiple disabilities like yeah. what are they like go dumb. yeah the 80 percent of words that are most popular verbally that we use yep um we've been producing tactile symbols by hand for years which is like gluing things on a card <laughs> and, stuff. and i was talking to this person about it she's talking to me about project core and how they yeah. have um, tactile symbols for those core words that you're talking about. We do. And there is an issue with that in Iowa because um, not every school district owns a 3D printer that would be right. required to make it. So while one kid's got his symbols, there's another kid that might not get them for a year. Right. So I asked her, I said, how about if I brought this up to Dan Clark and see what he thought? They asked <laughs> me to, and I was delighted to see that. Um, IPI seems to be all over this. Right. Three-dimensional symbols, which I think will be a big deal in the state if it gets off the ground. Yeah. That might be a big in the national thing, too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's a... I, when I'm thinking about a lot of students that I've worked with who have complex communication needs who are mm -hmm. using some sort of system, you know, typically they have multiple disabilities. So I, I didn't have many students who were um, blind necessarily braille users, but they were certainly um, a lot of students I worked with with low vision. And or, a lot, yeah. yeah. 
or a cortical vision visual impairment exactly yeah a lot of students with cvi um and so it, it it would be a really interesting thing to get off the ground for sure that's amazing nice work <laughs> that'd be great <laughs> um so, I do okay. hope it gets off the ground. Yeah, I do too. I, I I think that would be a really neat thing to do, and um, yeah, it would benefit quite a quite a lot of people. So many people. Yeah. Yeah, um, and you know, we we often and Josh and I talk about this all the time. Obviously, blindness and low vision is is a huge piece of this puzzle. We need to support people who are blind or low vision. Um, but there's a whole other slew of you know, disability populations out there who need support and often um, have multiple disabilities. And so how can we leverage, you know, support for one community while also supporting others? Um, and this is a great way to do that. And I, we can say that these symbols we're talking about are Braille because they are pre-Braille because yeah. it's actual sign and interpreting it. But um, I look at this whole API, API thing is what's happening is that they are assisting public schools in providing access to the curriculum everybody else has in a timely manner. Right, timely. That, that's <laughs> all communication anyway, so that includes the Braille and these symbols we're talking right, about. Right, right, that's yeah. excellent. Um, that's why, you know, as a, a public request from me, Kelsey is saying this on the record, I would love to also see a captioning thing come out of there. <laughs> And audio descriptions. I think that would be so excellent um, and such a unique thing to do to support a lot of, you know, K-12, higher ed. It'd be really great. <laughs> it's definitely a need. <laughs> um, that, would, that would cover all right that down? <laughs> Dan's got that, right? <laughs> See a need, fill a need. I got, wrote yeah. that down right away. See a need, fill a need, and that's part of your mission, correct? Right. So here we are, we're filling another need, a known need, but a need that's becoming more and more prevalent for sure. Um, I love your mission statement. That's such yeah. a such a wonderful humanistic way to look at it, you know? Especially since we hang out in the whole compliance side of things so often, we the conversation around the people really gets lost sometimes. And I think um, this is a great way to kind of bring that all together and bring that back. It's like, it, it really is about the, why do we do this? We do this because it's the right thing to do. Yep, um, and we do it for the people. Yeah. Um, so um, a couple of things before you leave us. Um, we, you know, how can people find out more about this? Do you have social media? Do you have a website? How much does this cost, by the way? <laughs> is it comparable to other so, places? Less expensive? Yeah. Uh, it's less expensive. So uh, each uh, printed page, I think, is nine dollars and ninety cents. And so we'll transcribe that in one business day and email it back an electronic file, or then we can transcribe or uh, emboss it and uh, send it out by courier. Great. So if uh, folks are interested, they can uh, visit iaprisonind.com and uh or just search on iowa prison industries and we should hopefully pop right up and we'd be delighted to work with you so we work with any uh agency governmental agency or nonprofit uh employees of those same organizations and we'd be delighted to help anybody in any state 
And um, I know you guys did a presentation at Closing the Gap. Are you going to be at any other upcoming conferences to talk about this? Yeah, I think Keith uh, is going to be at the um, uh, the next NBA or APH conference, Great. and so he'll be um, there to uh, talk about the Express Braille. So Braille on Demand is a service we developed for Todd and other educators within Iowa, right. and now we've just introduced Express Braille, which is the same service, but uh, for folks that are from out of state. Great. That's excellent. And yeah, we're, we're so appreciative of you guys taking time to talk to us about this. This is just, when I saw it, I was like, not enough people know about this. Yeah, this um, is, is, <laughs> it's such a wonderful service that, that you're providing for not only the incarcerated men, but the community members, everybody benefits from right. this. Um, and we're always looking to highlight things that really include everyone. So um uh, thank you for it. And we, is there any parting information or wisdom you want to leave on any of our listeners before we wrap up today? Well, <laughs> uh, just, <laughs> well, as you said, you know, this is a service that helps uh, the school children of Iowa and well, hopefully the nation and educators like Todd, but also the men and women that are in prison, more than 90% of them are getting out. So we really have an obligation to prepare them, and this is one of the great ways we have to, to help them get ready. Excellent. I would just add to that that uh, if you had a firsthand view of how this thing has changed some of these men in here's lives, I would say it's, it would just be all more motivation to go this route. Uh, it's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. <laughs> And I'll add that this has been a huge change for these kids in these public schools. You know, we talked earlier about just the materials and how long it takes to get it and all that. These guys have really put these kids in where they're supposed to be, you know, being yeah. side by side with their peers. It takes a village. <laughs> it does. And that's, and that's so important to be on par with everybody else and at the same level. Right. Shovel the ramp, right? Mm -hmm. So thank you thank all you. <laughs> so much for coming on. We very much appreciate you taking the time out of your day. Yeah, thank you. Sit and chat. And I hope that I see you at other conferences and um, hopefully people will reach out. We will have um, access to the transcript for this episode. Uh, and also if you would like us for us to provide your emails or anything, we can do that as well. Or links to your website. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, we can certainly yeah. do that. Oh, thank you very much. Of course. Thank well, you. Thanks for, <laughs> thanks for the opportunity. All mm -hmm. right. Well, thanks and have a great weekend, everyone. Yeah, thank you too. Have a nice weekend. Nice. Thanks, thanks for coming on. All right. Have a good one. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, we look forward to hearing from you. You can write to us at atc at umass.edu. Until next time. <laughs>